we're doing, but if it's the girlfriend, we might be tempted to listen in. Dana and I, truth be told, live vicariously through our two somewhat single roommates. Um, we've been married now for seven years, so we don't have all the drama that they get to have. <laughs> so we listen in sometimes. So if we're going to understand Paul's letter to the Ephesians this morning, we will need to do a fair amount of contextual work to see who is on the other end of the phone. To build this context, I want to actually go back to the previous sermon I delivered on Mark chapter 11, where Jesus enters the temple and clears the table of the money changers. In that sermon, if you were with us, you would remember that I took a series of rides with Michael J. Fox and the DeLorean, back and forth from the future to the past and to the present. Well, every good 80s movie has at least two to three sequels, so we'll call this sermon this morning, Back to the Temple, Part 2. In our last episode, we painted a picture of the temple in Jesus' day. And to bring us all up to speed, I want to bring up the bullseye diagram of the temple we discussed in my previous sermon. So the temple was built in a way that included some people and it excluded others. And so in our diagram, each ring represents a wall of exclusion. So we noted that on the outside of the entire temple complex were women and eunuchs. Uh, women because they were women, simply because of their gender, and eunuchs who were once male and they were, they were castrated, so then they no longer had a traditional sexual gender anymore, and so they were excluded from the entire temple complex. And then within the next ring is a wall that would allow you to be admitted into the temple courtyard. And so any male can enter into the temple courtyard. And then into the next ring, that's the actual temple building, and only Jewish eth- ethnic Jewish males can enter in to the actual temple building. And then in the center circle, this is the Holy of Holies, and so there's a curtain in the temple. And then within the Holy of Holies, that's the place where God dwells. And only Levite high priests would go into the Holy of Holies, and they would only do that once a year. So we noted that whole thing. So in episode one, I argued that Jesus linked the temple to a fig tree. Remember that that story of the, the fig tree that he sees before he goes to the temple and then after and he curses it? So we noted that the fig tree was dead and withered because it did not bear fruit. And I argued in that sermon that Jesus thought that the temple was a dead fig tree because of these rings of exclusion, which are not present in the future kingdom of God. All right, so our flashback is over. On to our present film, Back to the Temple, Part 2. The thing with sequels is they never really stray too far from the previous film's plot line. That is what makes them a good sequel, in fact. You make a sequel because you essentially want to watch the first film over again. But you've watched the first film 20 times. So you actually want something a little different, but not too different. When I read the sermon to Dana last week, she noted that she's still disappointed the 80s never produced Dirty Dancing 2. Now, if the Bible was an 80s film series, we could see the Gospels as the first movie and Acts as the sequel. They are two very similar films with a similar plot line. And whereas the central actor in the Gospels is Jesus, the central actor in Acts is Paul. And the storyline in Acts is the context in which Paul writes all of his letters. Letters like Galatians, Corinthians, Romans, Colossians, and for our interest today, Ephesians. So to understand our text today, we're going to have to travel into the end of Acts. In the end of Acts, just like in the end of the Gospels or in the end of any good movie, 
there's a heightening sense of conflict towards the end. In the gospel, we saw this in the gospels we saw this conflict reach its fever pitch when Jesus decides to enter the city of Jerusalem. When he makes this decision, his disciples tell him that to go to Jerusalem is to go about an effective suicide mission. In the realm of amazing 80s movies, Jerusalem is like entering the Death Star. Dana, who apparently only watched Dirty Dancing in the 80s, didn't know what the Death Star is. But I'm assuming everybody else has seen Star Wars and remembers like the super cool fortress planet with like the laser thing and it like combines in a Trinitarian thing that blows up other planets. Darth Vader lives there. On and on and on. Okay, you know about the Death Star, right? So in the end of Acts, Paul is going on a missionary journey throughout Asia Minor, what is now present-day Turkey. And in Acts 19, Paul is involved in a riot in Ephesus, in which he narrowly escapes with his life. But just like Jesus in part one, Paul tells his disciples his next stop is Jerusalem. All of Paul's companions tell him that this plan is completely crazy. They remember episode one. In episode one, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he got hung on a cross. They beg and weep and tell Paul not to go, but Paul is determined. The Holy Spirit has told Paul to go to Jerusalem, so he is going to go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is to be feared because it is the center of Jewish religious authority. Now, the earliest Jesus followers, including Paul, it should be pointed out, were all Jews. But they should probably be seen as radical, progressive Jews. They were followers of a radical man named Jesus of Nazareth. And they were radical because they were asking significant, challenging questions about the most basic ideas of what it means to be a Jew. In N.T. Wright's book, The New Testament and the People of God, he describes first century Judaism as resting on four great cultural symbols. These symbols, he argues, were first, the temple, and then second, Torah, or what can also be called the law, and those are the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then third, the promised land, and then fourth, Jewish ethnic identity. I think they're up there as well. So temple, Torah, land, and ethnicity. If you called yourself a Jew in the first century, you knew that the temple was where God dwelled. And you knew about those rings. You also knew that Torah prescribed the temple as well as the rituals of what it meant to be a Jew, including circumcision. You knew the promised land was exclusively given to the Jewish people, and you knew the Jewish people, who were marked by circumcision, were uniquely elected to receive God's blessings. In other words, you knew the Jews were closest to the center ring. But Jesus and Paul are questioning these pillars of first century Judaism, and it is getting them into serious trouble with the religious leaders whose vocation is upholding and protecting these pillars. So when Paul says he's going to Jerusalem, everyone knows this is not a wise strategic move. Undeterred, Paul, like Jesus, fearlessly and recklessly enters Jerusalem. And Paul, like Jesus, wastes no time. The first place Paul goes when he gets to Jerusalem is the temple. And now we're going to finally answer our first question this morning. Why is Paul in prison 
when he writes his letter to the Ephesians. The scene is described in Acts 21:27, and if you have time to turn to it, I, I would encourage you to. And as I read Acts 21:27 and a chunk of it thereafter, think about the temple with its rings, and think about the other pillars of Torah, the land, and Jewish ethnicity. Does anybody have a page number for that? Who's a fast Bible turner? 1167. So Acts 21:27. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. So remember, Paul was just preaching in Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor. So these Jews have, are likely have followed Paul from there. Generally, when the Bible is talking about Asia, they're not kind of talking about China. They're talking about uh, like Turkey, like Asia Minor. So there's a high likelihood that these Jews have followed Paul from Ephesus, where he just was. So some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him in to the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken in to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! Jesus enters Jerusalem, the Death Star, and is immediately arrested. And did you hear the accusation of the Jewish man from Asia? This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And he has brought a Greek into the temple. The temple actually has a literal sign above it that says any non-Jew that enters the temple should be stoned. So, like, it's for real. So, the Jewish man from Asia is appealing to all four of those cultural pillars that we mentioned. Ethnic identity, Torah, the land, and the temple. From the perspective of a first century Jew, Paul is teaching the destruction of Judaism as they know it. He is a threat and they want to kill him for it. And this is how he ends up in prison at the hands of the Romans. Paul will never leave prison again after this scene. He'll be moved from one jail to another until he eventually ends up in prison in Rome. And at some point during this imprisonment, Paul writes the letter to Ephesus, which is where our passage is from this morning. It is his theological defense against the Jewish leadership which has orchestrated his imprisonment. In other words, this is the other side of the phone line for Paul's letters. Paul is in conversation with a group of non-Jewish Greeks, Gentiles, 
in Ephesus who have become followers of a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth. But there are also Jewish believers in Ephesus who are also beginning to follow Jesus, but they are not ready to leave behind the four pillars of Judaism. They are following Jesus, but they still want to keep temple, Torah, the land, and their ethnicity. And they are insisting that the new Greek Christians need to follow these four pillars, these four pillars too. So now that we know who's on the other end of the phone line, let's go back and hear Paul's response. And we're actually going to go back to chapter 2, verse 11, which Pastor Sean spoke on five Sundays ago. And as I, again, as I read, listen for these pillars of temple, Torah, land, and ethnicity. So Ephesians 2:11. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two one and destroyed the barrier wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are becoming built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul is rewriting the four pillars of temple, Torah, land, and ethnicity. In Paul's Judaism, everyone can be a citizen of the promised land. In Paul's Judaism, ethnic divisions no longer stand. In its place is one new humanity. Jesus has abolished the law with its commandments and its regulations, and Jesus has destroyed the temple with its walls of hostility. In the new temple, there are no more rings. The one new humanity dwells with God in the center circle. And the center circle is the whole world. The new temple is not made of stones. Instead, it is being built with the new humanity. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And Jew and Greek, slave and free, men and women, are the new stones knit together by the mortar of the Holy Spirit. In essence, Paul reduces Judaism to one simple yet profoundly mysterious symbol, the cross. In Paul's vision, 
entrance to the center ring is only predicated on faith in Jesus Christ. The four former pillars all fall away to this new pillar. From our perspective, it is a beautiful vision, or it should be a beautiful vision. But from the perspective of a first century Jewish leader, it is a threatening vision. It undermines so much of what has come before. There are thousands of years behind the pillars of Judaism. The Jewish authority wants to know who this Jesus is and who this Paul is. They want to know by what authority Jesus and Paul can call into question these century-old pillars of Judaism. Chapter 3, our reading for today, is Paul's attempt to answer the authority question posed by the Jewish religious establishment. So I'll read that now. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. I think when he says that, I've already written about this briefly, I think Paul is referencing his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. So this story is referenced um, a couple times in the end of Acts, and Paul is you know, riding on his donkey, and then he gets knocked off of it. And then you see the big light, and Paul, Paul, why are you, you guys kind of, if you don't know the story, go and read it in the end of Acts. I think that's what Paul is referencing there. So in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So Paul is telling his Gentile audience, listen to me, not to Jewish Christians. I have been beaten and thrown in jail for this. You should listen to me because I have received a radical vision from the risen Jesus. He told me that the Gentiles should be included in the new people of God. He also told this to the apostles and prophets. I didn't deserve this vision because I used to persecute followers of Jesus but he graciously gave me the vision anyway. We are entering a new moment in history, one where the whole world, since God created all things, will be reconciled into one new humanity through one Holy Spirit. The only entrance requirement is faith in Jesus Christ. This was always his plan. He always wanted us to be with him as one 
reconciled people. And when this happens, when we are one with each other and one with God, even the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms will, be collapse, will collapse before us. That is Paul's good news to the Gentile believers of Ephesus. He is pleading their allegiance to that gospel and not the bad news of the established Jewish foes who would expect to keep the Gentiles as second-class citizens. Sure, according to the Jewish establishment, the Gentiles would be allowed to worship the God of Israel, but they would have to do so on Jewish terms. They could sacrifice to God, but they would still be kept outside the temple. They could become citizens of the land, but only if they tried to look and act Jewish by becoming circumcised. They could follow God, but only if they adopted the customs of the Jewish people who were God's special people, as prescribed in Torah. Paul says no to all that. That is not the way that God is going to make the one new humanity. One group will not assimilate the other. The new humanity is one new living temple built on Christ and the church and knit together by the Holy Spirit. Each stone, whether Greek or Ethiopian, Jew or Roman, male, female, or eunuch, is to remain its own stone with its own traits. The new temple is not one of square, chiseled, monolithic marble stones. It is a polyculture of zinc and copper, granite, onyx, quartz, and gold. It looks like the creation, like the pictured rocks of the UP. It is a spectrum of color and texture and taste. This new temple was always God's intent, and we are invited to join in it through faith in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So turning now to our present, and I have to ask this question. It's going to be a little bit corny, but just roll with it. Will there be a third film in our Back to the Temple series? The 80s, as Dana knows, only gave us one Dirty Dancing, and it only gave us two Ghostbuster movies. I don't know what happened there. But the two best of the 80s, Star Wars and Back to the Future, required a third sequel. So here's my question. Will Creston Church be an actor in the third film, Back to the Temple, Part 3? And what will the film look like? So it seems to me that if Creston Church wants to bear witness to the new, tempo, to the new temple described by Paul in our passage today, we will need to gather more stones. To be sure, in our midst this morning, we have old stones and new stones in our walls. From Fran to Lorraine to even little baby Theodore, we have a, variety, a wide variety of ages in the room. And we are uniquely blessed to have such a diversity of ages. We resist the labeling of many churches. That is the old church, or let's go over to that new hipster church. And we are beautiful for this diversity. I think we also have a fair amount of economic diversity. There is the working class among us. There are blue-collar people. Um, there are people that don't even know how they're going to pay rent next week. And I think we're a stronger community because of this economic diversity. But to be frank, as I look out at all of you beautiful people of God, I see a lot of marble. 
a lot of white, and only speckles of ambers, copper, quartz, and onyx. There are holes in our walls. Stones are missing, and I think many of us can feel those holes. Those holes allow the presence of God within us to diminish. The holes can make us feel cool inside instead of on fire. The good news is the stones we are missing are near. We are not far away in some ghetto of white, black, or brown. We are in a beautiful neighborhood full of a wide variety of ethnicities and economic classes. Our neighborhood is rich in stones. But those stones belong here with us, in this place, in the church. They are missing. I sense the Spirit wants Crescent Church to be built with all the stones that lie within our neighborhood. And if new neighbors come and are willing to join us, we need to make sure we don't try and assimilate them. We cannot chisel away their unique beauty. We can't try and make them look like us. We need them precisely because they are different, because they will see God and worship God and eat before God in ways that we do not. Their incorporation will expand and strengthen us and make us a wholly new temple. This incorporation, this making of one new humanity out of the two, will not be easy, and it will not happen overnight. The history that divides God's one humanity according to ethnicity, class, and race is a long and devastating history. A history that we all saw unravel again over the last months in Ferguson, Missouri. Before we move forward into the new humanity, we will need to know this history. We will need to educate ourselves beyond one-line stereotypes and 30-second media clips. We will need to be wise. We will need to listen. And we will need to repent. But beyond that, and this is far more important, if we are to have any real chance of really being unified beyond a superficial level, we will need the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason Preston should pursue diversity is not because it is a modern-day buzzword, but because the Spirit is calling us and wants to lead us and empower us to join in this new growing temple. And if, by the power of the Spirit, we are made into this new humanity, then, and only then, will we bear witness to the full truth of Christ Jesus, and we will be powerful for it. We will bring down rulers and principalities. We will bring down systems of exploitation and injustice. We will, we will tear down century-old walls of hostility. We will be the people of God with God dwelling in her midst. Only by the Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Andrew's going to come up and do the song of response. And I asked him to kindly teach us this song because it's a song uh, written by the, our friend of ours, Tom Weiss, who also wrote that He Shall Reign song. And it's this perfect medley of this holy new temple idea. Um, and also the song is, is Mary actually singing. It's, it's Mary's voice and just pondering the absurdity and the mystery of 
her body becoming the temple of the Christ child. We'll go through the song twice, the, the verse in the chorus.